Hi, I'm Don Mackey and welcome to the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. This show is focused on providing strategies to empower community success and vitality. Each episode will feature interviews with cutting edge rural development thought leaders and community practitioners, remarkable entrepreneurs from business, government, and nonprofits, and by sharing the learnings of E2 entrepreneurial ecosystems. Connect with me, learn more about E2, and subscribe to this show at energizingentrepreneurs.org. Welcome to Pathways to Rural Prosperity. I'm Shelly Pash, Manager of Rural Entrepreneurship for Network Kansas. I've, gosh, I've been in the field of ecosystem building for about 14 years through economic development, entrepreneurship, main streets, community development, and outreach. And I am privileged once again (laughs) (laughs) to introduce the one, the only Mr. Don Mackey, with E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems, hosted by Network Kansas. Don has actually filled, gosh, you've worked in the field of community economic development for way longer than me throughout North America for about 40 years with a deepening focus on entrepreneur-led economic development. So, hey, Don, welcome. Hey, it's great to be back together. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. It's a topic I particularly has fascinated me over the years. And so thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the whole point of, so we're, as you mentioned before, working with entrepreneurs. So the whole point of an entrepreneurial ecosystem is to help communities, their entrepreneurs develop their ventures or their projects contributing to a stronger local economy and cultivating your community's ecosystem is certainly foundational for growth and progress and a more competitive venture community. So describe to me and your listeners E2's basic model for working with entrepreneurs in rural communities across America. You bet. And again, what I'm going to share is what we've learned from communities across the country. Everything that we have gathered over the years was created by somebody else who did that hard work in a community, in a region to figure this out. And we've simply been there capturing it and building it into our model. So we've got to give credit to the co-creators over the years. Too (laughs) many to mention, but uh, they know who they are. I think part of it is this is the whole point of it. It's not about venture capital. It's not about loan money. It's not about that great technical assistance program like Fast Track, although all of those things are part of an entrepreneurial ecosystem and can be very valuable to particular entrepreneurs depending on where they're at in their their journey. But the important thing, and I think this is a breakthrough, although it's so obvious, is if you're a community out there and you're wanting to help the entrepreneurial talent that you have, whether that's a startup business or maybe a lifestyle business where the kids have come back in and they wanna grow it, or it's a business transition, or maybe it's a group of entrepreneurs that have this idea to create an e-commerce business in a rural community. The bottom line is you have to reach out, begin to talk to these entrepreneurs, find out where they're at, what do they need, demonstrate to them that you can maybe be helpful by networking them to the right resources at the right time. And too much of our ecosystem work, and this is just my opinion, so forgive me, folks, (laughs) is we kind of focus on the idea that what we call the supply side, you know, okay, here's the checklist. Do we have a 
a fast track program? Do we have a youth program? Do we have a micro lending program? You know, all of the kinds of resources that are probably going to be useful, but don't necessarily speak to the entrepreneurs you're working with today and what they actually need help on. And so the only way you're going to find that out is, at least within our model, is go out and begin to visit entrepreneurs, survey entrepreneurs, have those focus groups. At first, some of them are going to be reluctant to open up to you. Uh, Some of them never will. But over time, as you build that relationship, you'll find out what they actually need. And and sometimes those needs are, Shelly, really basic. You know, a lot of our entrepreneurs in rural America are production-oriented. They're good at doing something, providing a service, building, selling something. But they may not have the business skills or the marketing skills. So how can you connect that entrepreneur who is great with auto body detailing but not so great with accounts receivable getting them connected to maybe that great bookkeeper out there who has no hesitancy to get on the (laughs) phone and say, you owe us money. How are you going to pay up? (laughs) For sure. Yeah. For sure. It is connecting the dots. You know, you've got your connectors, your conveners, and I feel very strongly in the connector zone. And you're right as far as the trust gap for some, some businesses, business owners not wanting to connect with whomever that leader is in the community. I have faced that. And though in my Gallup Strengths Finder, Dawn, I am a woo. I am a winning others over. So ironically, I have won these people over. So it's pretty fun to actually see where, you know, they think like, oh gosh, you're going to make my taxes go up. And I'm like, you know what? You just, and the best thing that I could do was just give them the information they had, wait for them, answer their questions of what they needed, and then just kind of leave it go, you know, and they came back around and it worked out swimmingly. (laughs) Yeah. Why doesn't it surprise me that that's part of your uh, Gallup profile? (laughs) Right. Uh, Makes sense. (laughs) That's my number one. In fact, folks at Network Kansas initially were like, is that real? (laughs) It is. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. So in E2's entrepreneurial talent assessment resources, you provide a continuum of entrepreneurial talent from aspiring to high growth entrepreneurs. So why is identifying and targeting a community's e-talent so important in being impactful and helping generate greater venture assistance and increased economic development. I mean, I'm sure it's costly. It certainly takes quite a bit of time. Well, I think it comes back to what we started with our conversation on, and that is really meeting the entrepreneur where they're at. And whenever we say the word entrepreneur, that brings different images to people's minds. Some people immediately think of the Bill Gates of the world or that mom and pop hardware store. And the fact is, it's a continuum of entrepreneurial talent. And so at E2, beginning with Bob Ho in Maine and then Deborah Markley, who I worked with for years, we've developed this typology that really speaks to the kinds of entrepreneurial talent we have in rural America, beginning with those aspiring all the way up to high growth, although we typically don't have as many high growth as you would find in a Boulder or an Austin. But we have a lot of growth-oriented entrepreneurs, and this really makes a difference. And of course, our friends, Kate Hodel and Maria Myers at SourceLink, they have a... Whoop, whoop. <laughs> yeah, good, <laughs> good people. Yes, yes. 
they have a simpler typology where they talk about microenterprises and they talk about innovation led and they've kind of got it condensed around four types of entrepreneurial talent. So that's a good typology to look at. But let me just illustrate why this is so important. So if you're a nascent entrepreneur, you've never been an entrepreneur before, you didn't grow up in a family that were entrepreneurs, but you have this motivation and you want to buy a business or start a business, what you need is very, very different than that business that Christine Hamilton Pinnell, who used to be with Chris Gibbons in Economic Gardening Days, that has been around for 30 years and it's ready for some really dramatic growth. And so let me just contrast a couple of examples. You know, with that startup business, their capital needs are going to be different. They're probably going to need a good relationship with a commercial bank. They may need some gap financing. And depending on their age and their finances, they may need some LLC equity investors. If we think about those 20 and 30-year-olds with a lot of student debt, maybe kind of a tough credit score to get the deal done, they may need that additional kind of equity that helps them buy a building that eventually, as they get on their feet and succeed, can buy back. We have lots of stories like that. The way they take technical assistance is really different. You know, if they're a startup, they're much more open to going to that fast track class or the million cups kind of experience. But if they've been around for 30 years and they're getting ready for growth, chances are they're going to be less likely to go to that class. They want to get into peer environments with other people that are in growth that they can talk turkey with, actually get down to the nuts and bolts of how do you make a great selection for a new chief operating officer? How do you do due diligence on supply chain issues? The kinds of things that comes with growth. And at that point, they're probably going to need different kinds of capital. They're going to need lines of credit. They're going to need to be able to get a larger relationship with a commercial bank. And they're probably going to maybe need angel investors in a more traditional venture capital kind of mode. And so when the community takes the time to understand the kinds of entrepreneurs that they have, which ones are we trying to help based on our development goals, then that helps you decide what kinds of resources you need. So you're not trying to tell that 30-year-old business, well, yeah, why don't you start with our 101 class on being an entrepreneur? Because <laughs> right. it just is not going to work. And when people kind of think about it, it makes sense. But when we're so busy working day to day, sometimes we make those basic mistakes. And what happens is that entrepreneur says, I'm not going to do this. These people can't help me. And now they're not actively engaged in your ecosystem and you've missed that opportunity to help them grow. And that may mean that they have a, a bit of a challenge and don't grow as fast or make a mistake. And that has consequences for the community. Right. So, and I know when entrepreneurs can actually focus on growing better ventures, that's when the communities can help them forward their deal flow, right? Which leads mm -hmm. to economic development results. Dun, dun, dun. So it is, it just gets so interconnected and yes. And I think communication is just key for all of this. But like we said, sometimes business owners and entrepreneurs get a little bit sucked under sometimes because their business is running them instead of them running their business. So yeah, it's incredible work that we get to do for sure. So that's right. exciting. Yeah. Yeah. 
So within E2's e-talent range, you place considerable emphasis on growth-oriented entrepreneurs. And I'm going to interject in with a little bit of, so I recall in some of the development opportunity profiles that you've done for the Eastern region for Network Kansas, do you suggest annual or maybe twice annual outreach campaigns through the development opportunity profiles with growth-oriented entrepreneurs? So why is this particular group so important in entrepreneur-led development? So a couple of considerations. One is at the end of the day, our communities will support this kind of development, entrepreneur-led development and ecosystem building, if it can actually generate desired economic development outcomes, jobs, better jobs, tax base, more businesses, better businesses, new investment that creates opportunities for others in the community to do that construction project or what have you. And unless you can generate those kinds of economic development impacts fairly quickly, there's always the possibility, and we've got ample evidence for this, that the community will kind of lose interest and say, this is a lot of process and not a lot of impact. So we really see growth-oriented entrepreneurs as the sweet spot and recommend that communities consider starting there. Not that startups aren't important, not that helping that struggling entrepreneur in town isn't important. Even the great stuff you guys do at Network Hands with Youth, that's important. But if you wanna make sure you're demonstrating to the community that you're creating those desired economic development outcomes, then this is the group you need to find. And in most rural communities, it's going to be somewhere between 3 to 5% of your businesses. And these are folks that are relatively well-established in most cases. They're good at what they do. And something is happening that's causing them to think about growth. Hey, maybe that's a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, and they, and they have to pivot. Sure, sure. Or they're discovering that I provide a great coffee shop and bakery in this community, and then I'm looking around my region, and there aren't a lot of those. So maybe I can create a small franchise to open up shops with other investors and operators in other communities. Or one of the things, because many of our rural businesses are family-owned, Somebody comes back into the business, and you've heard this on our development opportunity briefings where I talk about the business in Western North Carolina where dad ran an auto body reclamation business, a junkyard. and But he also dabbled in European car parts. So he was salvaging these. People knew that if you needed parts for that Austin Martin, this was the guy you needed to talk to. Now, he had a daughter. She went away, and this was early in the emergence of broadband and, and the internet, and she had gone into computer science and said, I have no interest in running the junkyard. I don't want to do it. But dad, you've got this remarkable reputation as the go-to person to find replacement parts for European sports cars in the United States, or at least in that part of the United States. And ultimately, they created this web-based business because that's where her passion was. And obviously, it allowed them to scale up and reach a much larger market using this new technology coupled with a very old technology. 
where dad's passions were being fulfilled and so were the daughters and it made for a great deal. So there's a number of things that precipitate this, but these are the folks that are going to generate new investment, reach new markets, develop new products, hire people, create better jobs in most cases, and obviously contribute to the local tax base in a bigger way. And so that's why we think this group is so important and that when the community takes the time to go find these folks, and again, they're going to want to sit down confidentially one-on-one, you're going to have to get their confidence. So they begin to say, here's what I'm thinking of doing. I mean, think about our friends with Allo Communications and Imperial. A guy who ran the weekly newspaper, a guy who grew up and family ran the grocery store, moved away, and they came back and they said, we want to take on the big telephony companies and start a phone company. Uh. You know, for a community of 2000, Imperial had to think hard, are these guys nuts? <laughs> are they crazy? But in their particular case, the community said, no, we know them. And, you know, Brad Moline, who had worked with Sprint and other telephony companies who had come back, they said, okay, let's give this a chance. And now Allo Communications is one of the fastest growing telephony companies in this part of the country, reaching into metro markets like Kansas City now. So that becomes important because there's still that corporate headquarters back in Imperial where a lot of people have great jobs because somebody bothered to take the time to say, how can we support? A number of their early investors, Shelley, were farmers and ranchers in the area who said, I know nothing about this, but other than I have lousy telephony services, <laughs> these guys can do better. I'm willing to give them a shot and look at what they've done and the impact it's had on that community. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's super cool to hear. Uh, those are great stories. And I don't know if I've heard that junkyard story. Well, I, of course, maybe I forget. It was, maybe it was years ago, though, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's been, you know, you sit there and it's like, it. I, my brain can only hold so much stuff sometimes. <laughs> so well, I just love the- it because the desire of this father and daughter to work together was strong, but they had different passions. But when right. you put those two passions together, it changed the whole environment for the growth potential of that venture. I love that. I just love that. That's a super cool story, especially, yeah, and it merges together and it's a win-win, win-win, right? Yeah. So that's perfect. Yeah. So I've been working a little bit with several communities in Kansas on how to provide equity for every entrepreneur called E3, along with the support of from Forward Cities that's across the country and various different cities and states where they kind of do this community-driven approach for building entrepreneurial ecosystems with inclusion and collaboration, relationships, social capital. So in your diversity papers and podcasts, you talk about embracing all types of entrepreneurial talent. So if you would provide some examples of how a community can support a greater diversity of e-talent within their own ecosystem. I'm sure the listeners would really appreciate that. So would I. So would I. Yeah. Well, let me start with another example. I'm actually writing about this right now, but Vaughn Grisham in 1999 published his book, Tupelo, Mississippi, Evolution of a Community. And it was very influential in the development field because 
Tupelo, being in the Deep South, had gone through the culture of planters and slavery, had gone through Jim Crow. There had been tensions between the large African-American community and the historically dominant white community. And leadership in Tupelo said, if we'll embrace the full range of talent in this community, including the African-American talent and the parts of the white population that maybe didn't come from the best families historically, or at least that was the perception, we can grow a much stronger community. And that book always stuck with me, and it's, it's in my mind. And so as we've worked on diversity, a couple of things. One is communities really need to think about looking at diversity as an asset and not a threat to their culture. And we know we live in times where those dynamics are very much at play. And I think it's also important for communities who say, well, we don't have much diversity if you define that by race or ethnicity. But even those communities that when you look at the census data and they're 98% white, they have diversity. And over the years, they've been marginalizing some of that entrepreneurial talent. I mean, I still remember the day that I interviewed a dynamic entrepreneur in Minnesota, and she relayed the story of trying to start her first business. The bank would not lend to her unless her father or husband or brother would co-sign the loan. It really made her angry. Ultimately, she bought the bank and fired its president. <laughs> so she got a little That's bit of justice awesome. out of this. But it, it goes beyond even gender, which is still an issue in some communities in terms of how we treat people based on gender. But if you also think about it, even in these predominantly white communities, there are other groups. One of the groups are, if you're not from one of those predominant, well-known, well-respected families, maybe your family has struggled a bit, is your ecosystem going to treat those family members the same as they would if you were from one of those prominent families? And, you know, one of the best businesses, one of the first businesses Ord supported, Thunder Road, Rods in, in Valley County, these young men didn't have deep pockets. They didn't have the backing of predominant families, but they were motivated. They were talented and they built a remarkable business because the community said, we'll give you a chance. We'll work with you. There's also, you know, in a lot of our rural communities, if you are a newcomer and the question is, well, how many generations have you been here before you become a resident? There can be bias against new residents. We also know that as much as we want young people to come to our rural communities, including our own kids and grandkids, there's some unique challenges if they're sitting there with $40,000 or $50,000 of student debt. And how do you help them through your ecosystem begin down this road? And then in other communities, it may be a basis of values and, and faith. We have a lot of communities that have strong single faith orientations. And if you're not part of that group, nevertheless, you have the motivation, you have great ideas. Is the community prepared to embrace you as an equal and give you a fair chance? And so when we look at our case study on an ORD, one of the transformations that occurred is they really opened them up themselves up to working with a fuller range of entrepreneurial talent. And that's really now positioned them as they've grown. And they now are going to see 
an increase in people of color and different ethnicities, their capacity to create a welcoming community for that talent is much greater than it would have been even 10 years ago. So this is important because whenever we leave anyone with motivation and capability on the sidelines, employ intentional or subtle bias that doesn't give them the same chance that somebody else does, we're potentially losing that talent and that could really contribute to our economy. And it does make it challenging for sure. I so appreciate so many things in there. So, and I understand that the Ord story and everything you've been working on with them has been more than 20 years. So it's not, you know, if somebody's you listening now, here's the thing is that it didn't just happen overnight and it never does. It's incremental for sure. And you know, and even now it's not necessarily going to be an equitable system because wealth itself is not equitably split within the country. So it does make it a challenge on so many different levels. And as we've talked before, it makes it challenging for maybe Hispanic and African-American communities not being trusting of banks. So there are so many things. And even the youth that you had mentioned about coming back and maybe having this student debt You know, we also need to make sure one of my biggest accomplishments that I loved when I worked in a community that was changing the attitudes of the people in the community, maybe not all of them, but I know several had changed. So that was such a huge success, not for me, but for the community itself and being able to see that you have to make sure that when you're welcoming these students back, this youth back, that you can't look at them and go, oh, well, you didn't make it. You know, it's the, hey, they're making that solid change. And that's, you know, you have to look at it through their eyes too. So it's wonderful when you actually get to see people come back to your community, you know, welcome them off as they go away and that's perfectly fine, but make sure you welcome them back in. Well, and I think it also is part of our American heritage. At least we like to think it is. And and I still believe it can be. And that is, We've always kind of prided ourselves on the fact that we're a classless society, and in fact, we're not. We do have class. But the idea of a classless society is no matter who you are, what your background is, what you believe, that if you're willing to work hard, work smart, the system will give you a chance to success. That's kind of the American personal dream. And it's attracted people from all over the world for generations who have come to America with the idea that they could pursue their dreams. And that's why we see with immigrants and refugees and new residents, very high entrepreneurship rates. Because in many cases back home, they were a doctor or a professor. They can't get the certification to do that here, and so they launch into entrepreneurship because they're bright and motivated, and they want to create a better life for themselves and their family. And so part of this is getting our rural communities to say, we really do embrace that value, reward people based on how hard and passionate they are, or how hard they're willing to work and how passionate they are, Shelley, and... To me, that gets us past some of the ideological issues that goes with diversity. This is saying, let's play with the full range of talent in our community and give it a chance. And if we do that, we're going to build a a much better community and a stronger economy. Couldn't have said it better. (laughs) I have some other things, but but yeah, I don't know. So final thoughts, more final thoughts. 
I think we're about to wrap it up. Yeah. Well, you want me to just share some of the resources that we have? Where do we find you, Don? Yeah. Well, (laughs) the one-stop place is our website, energizingentrepreneurs.org. That's all one word. And if you go there, you'll find a whole set of free resources. You can join our E2 National Practitioners Network. And in doing so, there's no cost to any of these resources. You can access all of the tools, particularly the guide that we were talking about today about how to work with entrepreneurs. Get our electronic newsletter. I always say it's easy to subscribe to, but it's also easy to unsubscribe so that if you find that it's not valuable, (laughs) you can shake it off. But that's where we're gonna let you know about new resources that we have found or that we've curated, and then of course our podcasts. And specific to this episode, we're gonna be sharing with all of our listeners the E2 Working with Entrepreneurs Guide out of our E2 University collection. And that'll just go into much greater detail on the things that we've been talking about today, Shelley. Lots of stuff, there is lots of stuff. When you send me papers, I'm like, there's 49 pages. I get to go through them. So it's exciting to to read it all. (laughs) So you can do it on your own time as you're hanging out in bed and watching a show on your phone and listening to the podcast, whatever it is. So I appreciate you very much. Thank you. You bet. Happy to be with you today. Thanks, Don. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Head on over to energizingentrepreneurs.org where you can subscribe to this podcast and tap into more than 25 years of field experience from E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems. I'm Don Mackey, and I'll see you next time on Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. (music) 